Chapter thirty two of News from Nowhere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. News from Nowhere by William Morris. Chapter thirty two. The Feast's Beginning. The End. Dick brought me at once into the little field, which, as I had seen from the garden, was covered with gaily coloured tents arranged in orderly lanes, about which were sitting and lying on the grass some fifty or sixty men, women, and children, all of them in the height of good temper and enjoyment, with their holiday mood on, so to say. "'You are thinking that we don't make a great show as to numbers,' said Dick. "'But you must remember that we shall have more to-morrow, because in this haymaking work there is room for a great many people who are not over-skilled in country matters, and there are many who lead sedentary lives, whom it would be unkind to deprive of their pleasure in the hayfield, scientific men and close students generally, so that the skilled workmen, outside those who are wanted as mowers and foremen of the haymaking, stand aside, and take a little downright rest, which you know is good for them, whether they like it or not, or else they go on to other countrysides, as I am doing here. You see, the scientific men and historians and students generally will not be wanted till we are fairly in the midst of the tedding, which of course will not be till the day after to-morrow." With that he brought me out of the little field on to a kind of causeway above the riverside meadow, and thence turning to the left on to a path through the mowing grass, which was thick and very tall, led on till we came to the river above the weir and its mill. There we had a delightful swim in the broad piece of water above the lock where the river looked much bigger than its natural size, from its being dammed up by the weir. "'Now we are in a fit mood for dinner,' said Dick, when we had dressed and were going through the grass again. And certainly of all the cheerful meals in the year, this one of Hazel is the cheerfulest, not even excepting the corn-harvest feast, for then the year is beginning to fail, and one cannot help having a feeling behind all the gaiety of the coming dark days, and the shorn fields and empty gardens and the spring is almost too far off to look forward to. It is then, in the autumn, when one almost believes in death." "'How strangely you talk,' said I, "'of such a constantly recurring and consequently commonplace matter as the sequence of the seasons.' And indeed these people were like children about such things, and had what seemed to me a quite exaggerated interest in the weather—a fine day, a dark night, or a brilliant one and the like. "'Strangely,' said he, "'is it strange to sympathise with the year and its gains and losses?' "'At any rate,' said I, "'if you look upon the course of the year as a beautiful and interesting drama, which is what I think you do, you should be as much pleased and interested with the winter and its trouble and pain as with this wonderful summer luxury.' "'And am I not?' said Dick, rather warmly. Only I can't look upon it as if I were sitting in a theatre seeing the play going on before me, myself taking no part of it. It is difficult," said he, smiling good-humouredly, for a non-literary man like myself to explain myself properly, like that dear girl Ellen would. But I mean that I am part of it all, and feel the pain as well as the pleasure in my own person. It is not done for me by somebody else, merely that I may eat and drink and sleep but I myself do my share of it." In his way also, as Ellen in hers, I could see that Dick had that passionate love of the earth which was common to but few people at least, in the days I knew, 
in which the prevailing feeling amongst intellectual persons was a kind of sour distaste for the changing drama of the year, for the life of earth and its dealings with men. Indeed, in those days it was thought poetic and imaginative to look upon life as a thing to be born rather than enjoyed. So I mused, till Dick's laugh brought me back to the Oxfordshire hayfields. "'One thing seems strange to me,' said he, "'that I must needs trouble myself about the winter and its scantiness, in the midst of the summer abundance. If it hadn't happened to me before, I should have thought it was your doing, guest, that you had thrown a kind of evil charm over me. Now you know,' said he, suddenly, "'that's only a joke, so you mustn't take it to heart.' "'All right,' said I, "'I don't.' Yet I did feel somewhat uneasy at his words, after all. We crossed the causeway this time, and did not turn back to the house, but went along a path beside a field of wheat, now almost ready to blossom. I said, "'We do not dine in the house or garden, then, as indeed I did not expect to do. Where do we meet, then? For I can see that the houses are mostly very small.' "'Yes,' said Dick, "'you are right.' They are small in this countryside. There are so many good old houses left that people dwell a good deal in such small detached houses. As to our dinner, we are going to have our feast in the church. I wish for your sake it were as big and handsome as that of the old Roman town to the west, or the forest town to the north. But, however, it will hold us all, and though it is a little thing, it is beautiful in its way. This was somewhat new to me, this dinner in a church, and I thought of the church-ales of the Middle Ages. But I said nothing, and presently we came out into the road which ran through the village. Dick looked up and down it, and seeing only two straggling groups before us, said, "'It seems as if we must be somewhat late. They are all gone on, and they will be sure to make a point of waiting for you, as the guest of guests, since you come from so far.' He hastened as he spoke, and I kept up with him and presently we came to a little avenue of lime-trees which led us straight to the church porch, from whose open door came the sound of cheerful voices and laughter, and varied merriment. "'Yes,' said Dick, "'it's the coolest place for one thing this hot evening. Come along. They will be glad to see you.' Indeed, in spite of my bath, I felt the weather more sultry and oppressive than on any day of our journey yet. We went into the church, which was a simple little building with one little aisle divided from the nave by three round arches, a chancel, and a rather roomy transept for so small a building, the windows mostly of the graceful Oxfordshire fourteenth-century type. There was no modern architectural decoration in it. It looked indeed as if none had been attempted since the Puritans whitewashed the medieval saints and histories on the wall. It was, however, gaily dressed up for this latter-day festival with festoons of flowers from arch to arch, and great pitchers of flowers standing about on the floor, while under the west window hung two cross-scythes, their blades polished white, and gleaming from out of the flowers that wreathed them. But its best ornament was the crowd of handsome, happy-looking men and women that were set down to table, and who, with their bright faces and rich hair over their gay holiday raiment, looked, as the Persian poet puts it, like a bed of tulips in the sun. Though the church was a small one, there was plenty of room, for a small church makes a biggish house, and on this evening there was no need to set cross-tables among the transepts, though doubtless these would be wanted next day, when the learned men of whom Dick has been speaking should be coming to take their more humble part in the haymaking. 
I stood on the threshold, with the expectant smile on my face of a man who is going to take part in a festivity which he is really prepared to enjoy. Dick, standing by me, was looking round the company with an air of proprietorship in them, I thought. Opposite me sat Clara and Ellen, with Dick's place open between them. They were smiling, but their beautiful faces were each turned toward the neighbours on either side, who were talking to them, and they did not seem to see me. I turned to Dick, expecting him to lead me forward, and he turned his face to me. But strange to say, though it was as smiling and cheerful as ever, it made no response to my glance. Nay, he seemed to take no heed at all of my presence, and I noticed that none of the company looked at me. A pang shot through me, as of some disaster long expected and suddenly realized. Dick moved on a little without a word to me. I was not three yards from the two women, who, though they had been my companions for such a short time, had really, as I thought, become my friends. Clara's face was turned full upon me now, but she also did not seem to see me, though I know I was trying to catch her eye with an appealing look. I turned to Ellen, and she did seem to recognize me for an instant, but her bright face turned sad directly, and she shook her head with a mournful look, and the next moment all consciousness of my presence had faded from her face. I felt lonely, and sick at heart, past the power of words to describe. I hung about a minute longer, and then turned and went out of the porch again, and through the lime avenue into the road, while the blackbirds sang their strongest from the bushes about me in the hot June evening. Once more, without any conscious effort of will, I set my face toward the old house by the ford, but as I turned around the corner which led to the remains of the village cross, I came upon a figure strangely contrasting with the joyous, beautiful people I had left behind in the church. It was a man who looked old, but whom I knew from habit, now half forgotten, was really not much more than fifty. His face was rugged, and grimed rather than dirty, his eyes dull and bleared, his body bent, his calves thin and spindly, his feet dragging and limping. His clothing was a mixture of dirt and rags long over-familiar to me. As I passed him, he touched his hat with some real good will and courtesy, and much servility. Inexpressibly shocked, I hurried past him, and hastened along the road that led to the river and the lower end of the village. But suddenly I saw, as it were, a black cloud rolling along to meet me, like a nightmare of my childish days, and for a while I was conscious of nothing else than being in the dark, and whether I was walking or sitting or lying down, I could not tell. I lay in my bed in my house at dingy Hammersmith, thinking about it all, and trying to consider if I was overwhelmed with despair at finding I had been dreaming a dream, and strange to say, I found that I was not so despairing. Or indeed was it a dream? If so, why was I so conscious all along that I was really seeing all that new life from the outside, still wrapped up in the prejudices, the anxieties, the distrust of this time of doubt and struggle? All along, though those friends were so real to me, I had been feeling as if I had no business amongst them, as though the time would come when they would reject me, and say, as Ellen's last mournful look seemed to say, No, it will not do. You cannot be of us. You belong so entirely to the unhappiness of the past that our happiness even would weary you. 
go back again, now you have seen us, and your outward eyes have learned that in spite of all the infallible maxims of your day, there is yet a time of rest in store for the world, when mastery has changed into fellowship, but not before. Go back again, then, and while you live you will see all round you people engaged in making others live lives which are not their own, while they themselves care nothing for their own real lives, men who hate life, though they fear death. Go back, and be the happier for having seen us, for having added a little hope to your struggle. Go on living while you may, striving, with whatsoever pain and labour needs must be, to build up little by little the new day of fellowship, and rest, and happiness. Yes, surely, and if others can see it as I have seen it, then it may be called a vision rather than a dream. End of chapter 32 End of News from Nowhere by William Morris